0: For those of you that don't know me, my name is Christian Moscoso, and I wanted to, uh, well, thank you guys for being here this morning. I'm one of the elders, uh, elder pastors here, and uh, we are just so glad you're here with us this morning, whether this is your first time or this is the church you call home. Thank you for being here. Uh, This morning, I wanted to, I get the, the privilege of preaching, and I am so excited to do that. Before I do that, let me ask you guys a quick question. How many of you, those of you that have children, believe your children are the cutest kids in the world? If you do so, raise your hand, there you go, there you go. All right, well, let me tell you guys, bad news, you're wrong. My children are, (laughs) as most parents do, I think my kids are the cutest, okay? And no matter how many pictures you hold up, Andrew, I will, uh, my kids are just the cutest. I also understand, and you don't have to point this out, that it is not thanks to me. Uh, (laughs) I am aware of that. Um, If you were to ask my daughter, Nora, actually, why she's so cute, she would quickly tell you that's because I look like my mama. And uh, now I'm going to confess, Megan hates it when she says that. And she would appreciate, I think she would appreciate if I mentioned that she did not teach my daughter to say that. That was me. Uh, She is right. Uh, She didn't teach her, and so I just thought I would clarify that. Uh, now, if you come to my office, um, first of all, <clears throat> I want to apologize on behalf of my wife because my office is most times a little messier than it should be, and it embarrasses my wife. But uh, in my <laughs> office, I usually have pictures. I, you know, all of us, we, we love to have pictures, and so I have pictures. I have pictures of my family. Uh, I have pictures of some of the places that we've been to. And if you come to my office, you'll see there's a little stack of photos that I haven't taken the time to hang yet, uh, but they're, they're, they're pictures that I just really love because they remind me of specific moments. One of the photos that I have in this stack, you will see it on the screen right now, and that's my son, Tiago, in a way, when he was a year and a half old. Now, he is adorable, right? Uh, if you, now, and, and that's, there's a reason I'm showing you this picture. He, he looks so cute. I mean, this, he's sweaty and everything, but he was just so cute. Now, the reason I'm showing you this picture, though, is because it's not what it looks like from the first glance. If you pay attention, you will notice that the background is kind of grim. If you zoom into the photo, uh, as you see right here, uh, <laughs> you'll notice that in the background, there's a stack of skulls. We took this photo, and you can take it down. I don't know that we need to be <laughs> looking at that, but we took this photo in, uh, um, in one of the sites of what is famously known as the killing fields in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. In 2015, we had the opportunity to visit the site a while back, um, and that's when I sta- when I snapped this picture. Now, why in the world am I showing you this picture? Especially two weeks before Christmas. Merry Christmas. The reason I'm showing you this picture is because I think that this picture represents very well the season of Advent. In the last two weeks, we said that Advent is a season of waiting. We said that uh, it's a season where believers, we look at the darkness around us in the eye, and we don't flinch because we know that a Savior is coming. You see, in this picture, you see a beautiful, innocent boy surrounded by death. He's not aware of the skulls behind him. He doesn't know that there are 5,000 skulls in that building. Nor does he know that each one of them was a man or a woman that was brutally murdered by the Khmer Rouge in the 70s. He doesn't notice the markings in many of these skulls that were smashed in. That very day, we visited another site, another one of the, the killing field sites, one that used to be a school. Um, and would later be transformed into a prison. It's called Prison S21. That school would later be used as a place of death and torture. In this school, as you walk through it, you see the pictures of the many people who were murdered in that place. Very systematically, the Khmer Rouge, every time they brought someone to that place, they would take a picture of them. They would come up with a file. They would... uh, interview them in detail, they would torture them and then they would dispose of them. As you walk through it, like I said, you see the walls plastered with the pictures of the many people that died in that school. And um, if you keep walking, you see that every one of those classrooms was turned either into a cell room into, into a cell or an interrogation room or torture chamber. It's terrible. It's an awful place. That's cool that was one day, no doubt, built to educate children, to offer them a better life and a future, would later be distorted and transformed into a place of death and suffering. Merry Christmas, church. Church, why am I saying this? Because so is the world we live in. You see, though God created this earth out of love and out of joy for His loved ones, and he designed it and, 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 pre, and, and created it and said that it was good. Our, our disobedience turned it into a place where sin and death are not prevalent. You see, it is in this same world of death and suffering that you and I live in. And this, church, is the context of Advent. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered why it is that we preserve places like this? Why is Auschwitz still standing? Why are the genocide memorials all over the world, be it Cambodia, uh, Poland, Rwanda, and wherever other places you may think, why are those still standing? Why have we not demolished them to build something better instead? Church, these memorials stand so that when we walk through them, we can look at evil in the eye and be reminded of what sinful man is is capable of doing. Have you ever heard the phrase, never again? This sentence is often used in the context of genocide, isn't it? It can be traced back to 1927 to a poem called, to a poem called Masada. In it, the author says, never again shall Masada fall. It would be later popularized in the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust uh, to lament genocide against the Jews. We've all heard it. Right? Never again. After the, war, the, after the war, the world cried, Never again. Never again would we allow an atrocity like the one in, nine, in 1939 to 1945 to happen again. Never again would we allow genocide. But then, if you're familiar with history, you, say, you know that this very same saying would be used after the genocide in Cambodia in the 70s. After the genocide in Rwanda of the Tutsis in 1994, we would later use this very saying after 9 11, we would cry out, never again. And church, the list is countless. Even today, this very year that we're about to end, we have an ongoing war in Ukraine. There is an active genocide against the Uyghurs in China, there is oppression in Iran, there's persecution of the Rohingya in Myanmar. And the tyrannical abuse of the nation of North Korea. Church, in light of all these things, the cry of never again rings hollow, doesn't it? Because it doesn't mean much if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Church, this world of never agains I am describing is not a world long gone. It's not just a world of history books. It's the very same world you and I live in today. Just like in the picture I showed you, we too are surrounded by death. The problem is that we are experts at putting on makeup on the world around us. We decorate it with lights. We decorate it with shiny things. We make it comfortable. It makes it very easy to forget how broken the world around us truly is. Advent Church is is a season that has a similar function to these war memorials. It is meant to remind us of the brokenness of the world that we live in. It reminds us that this world is not our home. Right. But it also causes us to worship in Thanksgiving for the coming of Jesus Christ on Christmas night. And it causes us to lift our eyes in expectation, knowing that He will come again. That church is Advent. Today's the third Sunday of Advent. A season of contradictions. When the, tragedy, when the tragedy of the past collides with the promises of a future peace. That is Advent. Today, as we prepare for Christmas, we are going to look at why it was that we needed Emmanuel, God with us. To put on flesh. What that, why we needed him to put on flesh. To be born on that Christmas night. We will also see that he actually came. It was not just a promise, but he actually came. And we will look at what he came to accomplish. Fleming Rutledge, a writer, says this. She says, we are not looking backwards sentimentally to a baby. We are looking forward to the only one in whom the promise of peace will someday be fulfilled. And church, in order to do that, this morning we will read a passage. One of those passages uh, that we hear a lot during this season. But to help, to help us truly understand it, I want us to look back once again at the context of where this promise was f- fulfilled. And for that, I want us to um, I w- I make my first point, which is this, that the promise of a Savior is the anchor that keeps believers grounded in time of difficulty. In the last few months, um, most of you would know, we've been going through uh, the books of Samuel. It's been a, a wild ride. Uh, we also talked about God's covenants, and we saw how the story of the Bible is always marching towards deliverance and redemption. At the center of the book of Samuel, of the books of Samuel, in chapter 7 of Second Samuel, we see a promise that God made David that is known as the covenant with David. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. We keep referring back to it. And the reason we're being so repetitive is because it means so much. In that promise, God promised David that from his offspring, a king would come who would establish a throne and his kingdom would be forever. Church, this was not a new promise. You see, God had already made the same promise to Adam and Eve in the garden immediately after the fall. He would later expand on that very promise to Noah right after the flood. The same would be done with Abraham. We, talk, we, we talked about the, the covenant of, with Abraham. And later, he made the same promise to Moses. He, he reminded him that there was a deliverer that was coming immediately after Moses and the people of Israel were delivered from slavery. You see, church, in the middle of brokenness, sin, suffering, and foolishness, God has always anchored his people in the hope of the promise of a deliverer, a savior, a messiah. Church, the context of God's covenant with man has always been this broken world that we live in. In the new year, though, We will continue with a series in the book of Samuel, the books of Samuel, and we will see that even though uh, David lived an amazing life, his life would still be filled with sin, with bad decisions, and with suffering. This great king, a man that God himself describes as, as, as a man after God's own heart, would one day commit grave moral failure. Spoiler alert, we'll get there, okay? David will fail. He would not only fail with, with Bathsheba, he would also fail as a father. He would one day see one of his own children, one of his, son, one of his sons, abuse his daughter. He would fail as a father. He would one day grieve the death of his very son that tried to usurp his, his, his throne and to kill him. David, in the end, would die in weakness. And he would leave behind a very dysfunctional family. You see, church, David's highs were very high. They were huge. But his lows were also very low. And yet, this is the man that God would choose to make a covenant with. This broken man, this foolish man, God chose to make a covenant that we're still talking about today, thousands of years later. The question is, why? Why David? Why this broken man? You see, God's mercy does not depend on human virtue. God's promise came to David not because he deserved it. God didn't wait for David to sort out his life and to pull himself together. This church, the brokenness of David's life, was the context of God's covenant. God made a promise to David. Not because of who he was, but despite of who he was. And church, the same is true of you and me. You see, every human religion depends on the ability of man to earn his salvation. Every other religion believes that man has the ability to tip the scales in his favor. Whether through good works or through paying off a god or deity, every other religion tells you, you can save yourself. Christianity, on the other hand, tells us what we already know to be true deep in our hearts. And it's the fact that we are utterly unable to make ourselves good. We are utterly unable to save ourselves. John's thought puts it this way. He says, Christians are not utopians. Although we know the transforming power of the gospel and the wholesome effects of Christian salt and light, we also know that evil is ingrained in human nature and human society. Churches, Christians, we're not utopians. So, if you're here this morning, wanting to know Jesus, but you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like a hypocrite just sitting down there in church on a Sunday morning, let me tell you, that's not as bad news. That's not the bad news that you think it is. Because in the end, you're actually correct. You're not good enough. And that's good news. Because you see, when it comes to Christ, all you and I bring to the table is our need. Our need of a Savior. And that is enough. And He will take that and He will save us and deliver us. You see, after David, many kings would come to take His place and each one of them would fail miserably. Yet God in His mercy would send His prophets time after time, to call his people back to himself. Eventually, in their time of need, the people of God will come back to him. A remnant of his people would confess their sin. And they would confess their need of a Savior. They, as a people, would cry out, never again. They would repent. They will come back to the Lord and say, never again. Only to turn their backs to him on him, time after time. And church, it isn't this in, in the middle of this cycle of rebellion, sin, and foolishness. The promise, the promise of God, kept coming back through His prophet. God, in the middle of the brokenness of man, kept whispering to His people, "A savior is coming. A savior is coming." It was in this cycle of never agains, and after four hundred years of silence, that Luke two takes place. Luke 2 is a passage we're going to be looking at today. Now, a few years uh, no, sorry, not a few years ago, but a few weeks ago, my wife and I went to the Dr. Phillips Center to watch Hamilton, the musical. Yes, I am one of those weird people that likes musicals, and that's okay. <laughs> now, if you're familiar with the play, you'll know that the first song starts with a bunch of little snippets from different secondary characters describing Hamilton. The last one of them is Aaron Burr, who ends by asking the question, What's your name, man? And the question and the answer is Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Now, why am I telling you this? Clearly, not because I can sing, but because in the same way, the Old Testament has been given us snippets, signs, and, 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 and things that will point to a savior. And it is here in the beginning of Luke that the question is answered, what's your name, man? Mm -hmm. And that's not Alexander, but it's Emmanuel, God with us. Church, would you stand and read with me this morning? We're going to read from Luke 2, verses 8 through 11. Through 14, I mean, I'm sorry. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Church, that is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you please speak to us through your word this morning? Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, see as these shepherds, these lowly shepherds, Father, may we receive the message of the good news of the coming of our Lord, and may we rejoice and give you glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I mentioned earlier, this is one of those texts that we are all very familiar with. But I want us to take a step back. I want us to try to look at this passage with new eyes, because you see sometimes familiarity blinds us to the beauty of the text. And so one of those things that we want to reconsider is the way that we view these shepherds. If you are like me, when you hear these shepherds, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is the cute kids from the Christmas pageant, right? You know, We've all been there. We've all seen it. We've all seen our kids you know, with towels around their heads trying to look like a cute shepherd. And sometimes when we think of shepherds, that's what we think of, like cute little boys. Now the worst thing that they can do is cry in the middle of the pageant or pick their nose and embarrass their parents. But in reality, the picture here is not cute. Whenever we see a group of shepherds in Scripture, that's not a cute picture. This was a group of men who were, more, uh, who were most likely considered ignorant by the society standards at the time. So much so that their testimony wouldn't be accepted in a court of law because they were considered untrustworthy. You see, shepherds were looked down on. Shepherds were not accepted in society. People looked down on them. They thought they are not worthy. Now we don't know what these shepherds were doing that night. But I've been around men enough to know that as a group of unregenerate men, they were probably not singing carols or reading poetry. Who knows what they were doing? Who knows what they were talking about? Who knows what kind of conversation the angel interrupted? But we know from the passage that outside Jesus' family, his immediate family, these men, these lowly men, unworthy men, were the first to hear of the birth of Christ. And this church is a sign of God's grace. That he would choose the lowliest of the low to announce the great news of great joy. You see, Jesus himself would later say that he did not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. He didn't come for those who think are healthy, but for those who know are sick and in need of help. Church, such is the great mercy of God. He reaches down to the lowliest place and saves the lowliest of men. He reached down for you and for me. You see, the Son of God came to a broken world to save a broken people. Verse 9 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to these lowly men. And what was their reaction? Panic. Fear. Now can you picture this? Can you picture that scene for a moment? You're watching over over sheep. You're sitting around the fire with your buddies, talking about who knows what. And out of nowhere, an angel of the Lord appears in front of you. Can you believe that? Can can you even imagine how shocked you would be? You know, the other night, I was walking my dog. It was about 9 p.m. And when I came around the corner, one of my neighbors was putting Christmas lights in one of his bushes. Now he didn't see me, he didn't hear me, and all of a sudden I'm right next to him with a black dog, and I scared this poor man so much he jumped back and he was visibly shaking. I felt so bad for this guy, because I you know, I, I know I'm not that good- looking, but I also don't think I'm scary. And the thing is, the reason he was scared is not because of me, but it was just because it was unexpected. He wasn't scared. he was startled. And there's a difference between being scared and being startled, isn't there? Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you think the shepherds here were just startled like my neighbor that night? No. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Maybe they started by being startled. But the reality their fear was not just being startled. That's not why they were afraid. They were filled with fear. Because in light of the angel... They were able to see themselves for who they truly are. They saw their sin, they saw their their unworthiness, and they feared. Church, when sinners come face to face with God or with His messengers, they are filled with fear and dread. When we are aware of the depth of our sin, when we realize the seriousness of our sinfulness, of our disobedience, of our rebellion to God, in light of his majesty and holiness, it is appropriate to be terrified. God, however, in his mercy, time after time, tell his people, fear not. Fear not. The angel, in this case, is bringing good news. He says he's bringing good news um, uh, of great joy. So would you read with me verses 10 and 11? And here I want you to see that God, our Son, I mean the the Son of God, I'm sorry, our Savior, Jesus, came to bring good news of great joy. Verses 10 and 11 say this, "They say, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel of the Lord tells these lowly shepherds that on that day, In the city of David, that other broken man, a Savior, was born. You see, as Jewish men, they knew exactly what the angel was saying. They knew of the covenants of God, and they knew that there was a promise of a coming Savior. But they also knew that there had been at least 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence from God. And now the angel is telling them, the wait is over. The King is here. The Savior, the Messiah, is here. Now let me ask you a question. Why is this so significant? And even if it was great news of great joy for these shepherds, how is this good news for you and for me? What in the world is the good news that the angel is talking about? And in order to answer this question, I'd love for us to go to the book of Zephaniah. This was a book that was written more than 600 years before the coming of Christ, and yet Zephaniah will tell us, and he will help us this morning understand the good news of great joy that the angels are talking about. So would you go with me to Zephaniah chapter 3? By the way, it's okay to look at your index if you're looking for it. It's a little book in the middle of a bunch of little books, and so it's okay. Zephaniah 3 says this, <clears throat> it says, now I want you, as we read it, I want you to pay attention of the things that Zephaniah is telling us that the Savior will do. It says this in verse 14, <clears throat> sing aloud of the o daughter of Zion, um, shout O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord you see here Zephaniah is giving us a glimpse of the glory to come. 640 years before the coming of Jesus Zephaniah is telling us exactly what he will do. Now you and I are looking at it from a different point, from a different perspective. We're looking at we're looking back to what Jesus did. Zephaniah is looking forward to what he was doing. But Zephaniah is giving us good news here. It's such good news that he tells us to rejoice and to exalt with all our hearts. But we will talk about that in my last point. Now, let's look at Zephaniah and what he tells us because it's a lot. There are many things listed here, but I want to focus on at least five of them. The first thing I want to point out is the fact that the Savior would take away our judgment. Church, this is huge. Church, we are sinners. We deserved death. We were the objects of the wrath of God. We were the enemies of God. Our rebellion against the God of the universe is serious business. And the just penalty is death. And yet, Jesus came to take away the judgment. Not by sweeping it under the rug, but in sacrificial love, he took the guilt that you and I had, he took our guilt, and he paid for it. He took our debt, he put it into his account, and he paid for it. Church, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a child of God, if you have called upon the name of Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, you have uh, have put your trust in him, you today stand as an innocent man or woman before God. Church, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin your, your sin or your guilt, he sees you as perfect and he smiles. The second thing that I want to point out is that the Savior would defeat our enemies. So, Vaniah will repeat later this in verse 19, but what he's saying is that Christ would defeat our enemies. And at the cross, he defeated the enemy of our souls. At the cross, Jesus crushed the snake's head and freed us from slavery to sin. Church, we are no longer slaves. We are no longer guilty. Christ has delivered us from the bonds of sin and he has made us new creatures. Number three, in verse 15, the third part of verse 15 tells us that the Savior is now with us. He says this in, in, in verse 15: it says, The Savior, I mean, the Lord is in your midst. And church, this too is huge. Because up until the cross, the presence of God had been limited to the temple. From the beginning, God had made it clear, though, that He wanted to dwell with His people. But on that Christmas night, God put on flesh. He became incarnate, and He came down to us. And church, that is huge. Church, that baby that was born on Christmas night, His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And because God is with us, Zeveniah tells us that we should never again fear. Number four, the Savior would delight in us. And this is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Verse 17 tells us that God will rejoice over us with gladness and He will quiet us with His love. Church, if I'm honest with you, there's moments where I don't believe this. There are moments when I'm tempted to believe that God merely tolerates me. He kind of accepts me because he's God and he has to. But that's not what Zephaniah is telling us. He's telling us that he rejoices over us with gladness. You've heard me say this before, but I once heard someone say that the deepest desire of the human heart is to be seen to be completely forgiven, and to be still wanted. You see, you and I, deep inside of us, we desire to be loved. But not just loved. We desire to be loved, but to be truly known as well. We want to be known and still loved. That is precisely what the text is saying about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just put up with us. He delights in us. Dane Ortland says, the gospel offers us not only legal exoneration, inviolably precious truth. It also sweeps us into Christ's very heart. You see, our salvation is not a transaction. It is an intimate demonstration of God's love for us. Michael Reeves says that Jesus is not a reluctant Savior, but one who delights in showing His mercy. Have you thought about that? That he's no grumpy God, maybe kind of forgiving you. He delights in showing you grace. He delights in giving you mercy. Now let me ask you, church, do you believe this? Is this the Jesus that you believe in? Is this the Jesus that you think of when you confess your sins? When you consider your brokenness and you want to confess it, is this the Jesus that you're drawing near to? Or do you picture Him as a Savior that merely tolerates you? That maybe will give you just one last chance. Because let me tell you, that is not the Christ that we see in Scripture. Church, God delights over His people. And that includes you. If you are a child of God, if you have called upon the name of Jesus, that is you. The text tells us that He quiets us by His love. The picture the prophet paints here of us is one of a God who, like a loving mother, sings over the child in her arms. Do you hear the language? He quiets us with His love. Number five. The Savior will remove our shame. Verse 19 says this. It says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Church, he didn't just take our guilt. He also took our shame. Matt Chandler explains the difference between guilt and shame. He says, guilt is more about what you do. Shame is more about who you are. And you know, at times... We, we can understand that our guilt is removed, but we still carry that shame. Church, I have a good news for you today. Christ, our Savior, didn't only remove our guilt. He also removed our shame. Church, we can look him in the eye and he doesn't cringe. He doesn't roll his eyes at us, but delights in giving us grace. Church, if you're here today and you're a burden by your guilt and by your shame, whether this is your first time here at this church, or if you've been here Sunday after Sunday for years, if you feel like a hypocrite sitting here this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus wants you. Let me say that again. Jesus wants you. He's not done with you. David tells us in Psalm 51 that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Jesus wants you. Would you come to him? Now, I want us to read again the last three verses, 12 through thirteen. And this is my last point. And I want us to see that he came to receive our praise. Verses 12 and on says this. It says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. There's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to say about the baby. God Himself in the flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. There's a lot to say about that, but, but, but I want us to focus on something else right now. I want you to see how the angels came to model our proper response to this to this Savior that came. The angels tell the shepherd where to find the baby. They tell him. He told. Sorry, the angel tells them where to find the baby and what the baby would look like. And after that, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared, praising God. You see the angels were modeling to the shepherds the appropriate response to the good news of the gospel. And that is worship. That's right. In the passage we just read from Zephaniah, the prophet started by saying, Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart. Church, the only appropriate response to the good news of the gospel is worship. Right. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe this? The good news of the gospel should steer our hearts to worship. It should move us towards adoration. You see, the only reason we can stand this morning and sing to God is precisely because he made it possible through the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Church, the baby in the manger was the first step, but it didn't end there. At that point, the good news is still incomplete. He would eventually live a perfect life. He would die at the cross and He would rise again on the third day and later ascend to to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father from where He intercedes for us today. And it is only because of the sacrifice that we can stand here this morning and approach God in worship. Church, that night the angels would cry out, Glory to God in the highest! And on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Church, I have good news for you this morning. No matter how broken our world is, we can rejoice. No matter how how we can make it, sorry, we can rejoice, not because we can make this world pretty, but because you and I are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. Have you thought about that? Church, He's not pleased with us because of what we do. He's not pleased with us because of who we are. He's pleased with us because He loves us. And He rescued us. And He continues to form us into His image. Church, this is great news of great joy. Would you join us this morning? Would you stand with us as we respond to the Word in worship? As we sing about the glory of Christ this morning?